0: They like internationals the most. So. If I don't see you again, bye bye. And I'm really grateful. I am very, I'm very grateful that the Lord has allowed me to to sort of be your. Example over the years so that now you can help out Josh and his wife and anybody. You're welcome.
1: Thank you, Greg.
0: You're welcome. We're going to be um, in a book that nobody goes to. Ecclesiastes. That's the place. <laughs> We're going to be in an Ecclesiastes and it's going to be a very brief overview. It has to be. To give you sort of a a starting point of the way the, the book flows, let me give you a quick story. In Deadwood, South Dakota, there's a museum for fans of the American Wild West. And in that museum, you'll find this inscription left by a prospector that sounds a lot like a lot of people today. And this is what the inscription says. It says, I lost my gun. I lost my horse. I'm out of food. The Indians are after me. But I've got all the gold I can carry. (laughs) Sounds like a lot of us, doesn't it? Anyway, sort of an overview of Ecclesiastes. What happens when somebody that you trust begins to say things that you've never heard them say before and that seem to sort of contradict a lot of what they've said in the past? Do we disregard everything he said and walk away, just stay away from him so that we don't get more confused? Or do we try to figure out what in the world is happening that would make this person say things that doesn't sound like him at all? You know, feelings that are similar to what I just described enveloped a lot of people some years ago when they read C.S. Lewis's book a grief observed. Some people found out that they were very uncomfortable in reading this book. They were real troubled because they were accustomed to reading what C.S. Lewis said in all of his other books. And in there's other books they found strength, they found strong faith, and they found just a great defense of Christianity and now in this book a grief observed what they found was not these things at all what they found was a man seeking relief from the agony he felt at the death of his wife he says among other things no one ever told me that grief felt so much like fear I am not afraid but the sensation is like being afraid the same fluttering in the stomach, the same restlessness, the yawning. I keep on swallowing. At other times, it feels like being mildly drunk or having a concussion. There is a sort of invisible blanket between the world and me. I find it hard to take in what anyone says, or perhaps hard to wait, to, or hard to want to take it in it is so uninteresting yet I want the others to be about me I dread the moments when the house is empty if only they would talk to one another and not to me and then in another place he says where is God to him when you need, go to him when your need is desperate, when all other help is vain and what do you find a door slammed in your face and and the sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside after that silence you may as well turn away the longer you wait the more emphatic the silence will become this is C.S. Lewis near Christianity the Chronicles of Narnia the Space Trilogy the Great Divorce on and on and he said It doesn't really matter whether you grip the arms of the dentist chair or let your hands be in your lap. The drill drills on. (laughs) This is a man in great despair at the loss of somebody that he loves more than anything, his wife. In the end, Lewis finds his way back to God, but it's not an easy journey for him. It's a very difficult thing. He's assaulted by grief on every side. And he asks the Lord questions when life doesn't make sense to him. And a lot of Lewis's readers didn't expect this, and they don't know how to deal with it. Many people that love the Bible find the same problem in the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes. We don't expect to find the words that we see there. They're different than what we see in so many other places in Scripture. They don't seem to match other parts of the Scripture. But the same God that inspired the book of Psalms, that inspired the book of Romans, inspired the book of Ecclesiastes. The words in Ecclesiastes show us aspects of God that we're not comfortable with and that we don't run into very often. You know, some books like Romans put God in the very center of everything it talks about. But also God lets us get to know him by making us look at ourselves. He shows us what we were made of or what we are made of and then he tells us to look at what we've become. In Ecclesiastes, God intends us to know him by requiring, uh, by requiring us to look at ourselves plainly, without embellishment, to look at our neighbors, the world, and the life that we've got, to get a feel for Ecclesiastes, we're going to read the first chapter, and then just a few scattered verses after that. But to get a feel of what Ecclesiastes says. Let me read the first chapter to you. If you don't know where it is, it's directly after Proverbs. It says, The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What advantage does the man have in all his work which he does under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Also the sun rises and the sun sets, and hastening to its place, it rises there again. Blowing toward the south, then turning toward the north, the wind continues swirling along, and on its circular courses the wind returns. All the rivers flow into the sea, yet the sea is not full. To the place where the rivers flow, there they flow again. All things are wearisome, man is not able to tell it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor is the ear filled with hearing. That which has been is that which will be, and that which has been done is that which will be done. So there's nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one might say, see this, it is new? Already it has existed for ages, which were before us. There is no remembrance of earlier things, and also of the later things which will occur. There will be for them no remembrance among those who will come later still. I the preacher have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I set my mind to seek and explore by wisdom concerning all that has been done unto heaven. It's a grievous task which God has given to the sons of men to be afflicted with. I have seen all the works which have been done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be straightened, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said to myself, Behold, I have magnified and increased wisdom more than all who were before me in Jerusalem. And my mind has observed a wealth of wisdom and knowledge. And I set my mind to know wisdom and to know badness and folly. I realize that this also is striving after win. Because in much wisdom there is much pain, and increasing knowledge results in increasing pain. It lifts you up, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> The traditional view is that Solomon wrote this, and you can see why. We won't go into it, although that is not the popular view view this day for other reasons that we won't go into. But it seems to me that Solomon is the author. You know, back in 1 Kings, Sol- God told Solomon, I have given you a wise and discerning heart so that there has been no one else like you before you, nor shall one like you arise after you. Scripture says that he was wiser than all men, that his wisdom surpassed all the wisdom of the sons of the east and all of Egypt. But in all of his wisdom, Solomon says, vanity of vanities, all is vanity." This means meaningless, meaningless. All is meaningless, empty. Everything is empty. It's like smoke. You try to grab it with your hands, and there's nothing there. And what makes this view so disturbing is that it doesn't mean just a momentary, meaningless moment. It's the sum total of all of life, meaningless. Meaningless vanity emptiness so what does this preacher Solomon mean does he mean that includes God and godliness well he's not in a hurry to give an answer to that question he takes the whole book before he gets to the answer at the end but he does give us an immediate clue of what he's talking about in verse 3 with the phrase, under the sun. And that's a phrase that we find almost 30 times in the book of Ecclesiastes, under the sun. And the phrase means, in this world. We're a soul-starved people, and we're looking for meaning in this world, under the sun. And the preacher is going to show us by his own searching, by his own mistakes, that there's no place we can go in the realm of man to find a purpose in it all, to find an answer to the question, what's the meaning of life? So under the sun means in this world, it means in man's knowledge and through man's knowledge, apart from God. Uh, You know, a lot of Christians have got sort of a fleeting acquaintance with the wisdom books of the Bible. What the Bible calls wisdom literature. They're really not that comfortable with most of it. When you get to the poetry of the Song of Solomon, we don't care too much for it because it's very sensual. One theologian said he was told by his pastor when he was a young man not to read the Song of Solomon until he was married. When you get to the book of Job, it's sort of like a long, long journey down a deserted highway. It starts out well, but before we get to the end, we're lost. And we abandon it. A lot of people read the beginning of Job and they never get to the end of it. It's easier to start hard to finish. James is considered wisdom literature, and it seems almost out of place in the New Testament because it's legalistic sounding in a lot of ways. Ecclesiastes, as one person has put it, it's like a crazed man standing on a street corner, and as we pass by, he glares at us, And he yells at us that our lives are built on an illusion and that we're all going to die. So we see wisdom books are the ones that we really spend the least amount of time in. We like the psalms, except the ones that are morbid sounding. It's been said by some people that Proverbs focuses on the norms, and Ecclesiastes focuses on the exceptions. And we don't like exceptions. We like things neat and in order that make sense. How many times have you taken some kind of a class where we're given the rules, and then at the very end they say, but there are exceptions to the rules. You ever been in an English class? when they say, okay, here's the way you spell. I before E, except after C, and we learn the rule. And then you get the rule down pat, and the teacher says, but there are exceptions. And a lot of people don't ever learn to spell because they don't learn the exceptions. We have to know the exceptions. And Ecclesiastes is a book of exceptions. It doesn't follow all the rules that we're comfortable with. Wisdom Ecclesiastes is wisdom literature and we need Ecclesiastes because it teaches us or it keeps us from trusting trite formulas under the sun. For example, Proverbs teaches us a principle. Proverbs says disaster pursues sinners but the righteous are rewarded with good. Sounds wonderful, doesn't it? Disaster pursues sinners but the righteous are rewarded with good. When we read this we think, you know, Job's friends were right. His misery means he sinned obvious, what else could it be? But the preacher in Ecclesiastes Ecclesiastes, tells us there is an exception under the sun. Ecclesiastes 7.15 says, in my vain life I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness and there's a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. There's the exception. Contrary to the interpretation of Job's friends, Job was actually a righteous man. The problem was that Job's experience didn't match the standard categories. It's like Job's friends knew the rule I before E, but they didn't know the exceptions. And so what they did, they charged their friend and they damaged him instead of loving him you know Jesus' disciples were no different when a man was born blind and they assumed that his blindness was caused by sin and Jesus let him know or let them know that they were mistaken that he didn't sin and his parents didn't sin but there was another reason there was an exception Ecclesiastes provides a voice to all of us that are like Job's friends or Jesus' disciples. You now, we can't go out into our neighborhood under the sun and hold out a t shirt, one size fits all. It doesn't work that way. Well. Life under the sun is not neat and tidy. the preacher doesn't give us Ecclesiastes to describe life as we want it to be or as good theology says it ought to be but he tells us about life as it is under the sun in this world you know another reason a lot of people are uncomfortable with Ecclesiastes is that most of the great topics of the Bible are not mentioned at all There's no mention of Abraham. There's no mention of Moses. No mention of David. No mention of the coming Messiah. There's no mention of the Exodus. There's no mention of the commandments. What it is, is it's an apologetic sermon. And an apologist is the home one that gives a defense of the faith or a reason for the faith. And this sermon that Solomon gives in Ecclesiastes defends a life of truth and faith by pointing to the meaninglessness of the alternative. Instead of thinking that the words of Solomon are haphazard or jumbled, we need to focus on life under the sun as the wisest man that ever existed describes it and he's tried it all. He looks at the world that we live in and he knows what it used to be in Eden and what it is now the only word that's going to describe it is meaningless it once was called very good in Eden but now it's not it's not completely destroyed but it's a shell of what it used to be so Solomon begins his search with wisdom which is only natural For somebody that was a thinker like Solomon. Back to the first chapter, where he says, in verses 16 through 18 again, I said to myself, Behold, I have magnified and increased wisdom more than all who were before me in Jerusalem. And my mind has observed a wealth of wisdom and knowledge, and I set my mind to know wisdom and to know madness and folly I realize that this also is striving after wind because in much wisdom there's much grief and increasing knowledge results in increasing pain now Solomon knows that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom because that's what he wrote in Proverbs in a couple of places but that's not what he's talking about now. In Ecclesiastes, he's talking about wisdom under the sun, wisdom on this earth apart from God. He means the best thinking that man can come up with on his own, and even with all of his power and all of his prestige, his position and his wealth. Solomon, too, is like a man running around a yard trying to catch wind in his hand. Even the very wise can't fix the world. Knowledge without God is empty. It's striving after the wind. So he says, okay, wisdom's not working. So he goes to the first three verses of the second chapter, and he decides to try something different. I said to myself, Come now, I will test you with pleasure. So enjoy yourself, and behold, it too was futility. I said of laughter, its madness, and of pleasure. What does it accomplish? I explored with my mind how to stimulate my body with wine while my mind was guiding me wisely, and how to take hold of folly until I could see what good there is for the sons of man to do unto heaven the few years of of their lives, wisdom didn't work, so he's trying pleasure. And the preacher says that while he was testing pleasure, his mind was still guiding him. <coughs> he knows what the paradox of hedonism is, and you know, hedonism is gather all the pleasure you can, live, eat, drink, and to marry. Tomorrow we die. And the paradox of hedonism is that the more you hunt for pleasure, the less of it you find. But he wants to test his heart. And he wants to see if this is really true. To know how he's going to react to the lure of pleasures. And he finds out that pleasure, too, ultimately <coughs> is empty, it leads to meaninglessness. What does it accomplish? in the few days of a man's life he says laughter and alcohol don't work to fill the void so he goes on to the next trial verses two verses four through six he says I enlarged my works I built houses for myself I planted vineyards for myself I made gardens and parks for myself and I planted them all kinds of fruit trees in them all kinds of fruit trees I made ponds of water for myself of which to irrigate a forest of growing trees. He created his own Eden. And in his Eden, there was no such thing as a forbidden fruit. Not the Solomon, at least. He tries creating everything. Using art and nature, He creates a world within a world. He had great wealth and he had power and he had great creativity. So he imagined it and with his money he brought it all into being. Then he speaks of his numerous slaves and his great flocks and his great herds. His silver, his gold, his male and female singers, his concubines, He had a living sound system in his created Garden of Eden with all of his singers everywhere. And it was emptiness. There was vanity. It was striving after the wind. Then I became great and increased more than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. wisdom also stood by me all that my eyes desired I did not refuse them I did not withhold my heart from my pleasure for my heart was pleased because of all my labor and this was my reward for all my labor thus I considered all my activities which my hands had done and the labor which I had exerted and behold all was vanity and striving after wind and there was no profit under the sun all of the things he's done and he realizes it's all empty. It only seems profitable under the sun in this world. It's an illusion. You know, our creativity can bring about beautiful paintings and great statues and wonderful skyscrapers and jet planes, but we can't stop earthquakes and we can't stop floods and we can't stop terrorists. In the same way, in a not very distant future from when Solomon wrote this, foreign power would occupy Jerusalem, own it, trash it, and trash all and destroy all of Solomon's great works, and today most of them are gone. You know, one man said that his cousin, when he came back from two tours in Iraq after he got back he went to a mall and he only lasted five minutes the first time he went to to the shopping mall and when he was asked why he said he was filled with intense anger at the heaps and heaps of stores and aisles filled with merchandise and people buying it he said it made him angry because after you've seen what the world is really like, it's hard to have patience with them all. Mm-hmm. Solomon teaches the same thing. And as we begin to see what the world is really like, the things set before our eyes don't satisfy us any longer. What we hear with our ears doesn't bring us rest. And that's because everything in this post-Eden world is sick. Even the most beneficial good has a certain weariness to it. Again, Ecclesiastes eight, All things are wearisome. Man is not able to tell it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing all things are wearisome. This, here are a few farewell statements of a few former presidents upon leaving the White House. George Washington, I would rather be in the grave than in the presidency again. (laughs) Thomas Jefferson, Never did a prisoner released from his chains feel such relief as I shall be in shaking off the shackles of power. James Buchanan, the predecessor to Abraham Lincoln. And Buchanan said this to Lincoln upon leaving office. He says, if you are so happy, sir, on entering this house as I am on leaving it, you are the happiest man in the country. Lincoln after being in the White House for a while. He says, I feel like the man who was tarred and feathered and ridden out of town on a rail. And James Kate hope, I shall be a happier man in my retirement.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Emptiness. Vanity. And all things are wearisome. So so Ecclesiastes exposes us to this kind of lament, this cry of exception, of emptiness, so that our taste for the things of this world will be diluted, that we won't be focused on this world because we see what it brings. It brings a life of emptiness, of vanity, a wearying life. We see the things in this world as trinkets, And we learn to hunger and be satisfied for something that's deeper and truer. You know, God's given us many things to have and many things to use. He's food and shelter. He's given us our place in this world. He's given us work. He's given us our spouses. And all these creations are from the hand of God. And they have a divine purpose. But none of them can satisfy our souls. None of them. And when we think that they can, we end up in emptiness. In chapter 12, the last chapter of the book, Solomon's finally ready to look beyond all the earthly emptiness and look to God. God. He tells us to remember God in our youth. If our pleasures are, are unrestrained when we're young, then we won't know either pleasure or God in our old age, in our latter years. The first six verses of chapter six tell us what tell us that life is failing. He's coming to an end. And to remember all of these things. And then, in verses 6 and 7 of the 12th chapter, Remember him, God, before the silver cord is broken and the golden bowl is crushed, the pitcher by the well is shattered and the wheel at the cistern is crushed. Then the dust will return to the earth as it was, and the Spirit will return to God who gave it. Remember God before it's too late, is what he's telling you. Here are a couple of words from billionaires in the past. Rockefeller said, I have many millions, but they brought me no happiness. Vanderbilt said the care of 200 million is enough to kill anyone there's no pleasure in it John Jacob Astor I am the most miserable man on earth Henry Ford I was happier doing a mechanic's job Andrew Carnegie millionaires seldom smile Solomon sums it all up all of his searching under the sun in the last two verses of chapter 12 he says the conclusion when all has been heard is fear God and keep his commandments because this applies to every person for God will bring every act of judgment everything which is hidden whether it's good or evil everything in this world everything under the sun man without God yields emptiness, vanity in utter contrast to meaningless meaninglessness there's God fear him and keep his commandments Solomon says and no one's excluded fearing God puts us in our place and all other fears in their place And nothing goes unnoticed by God. No detail is too small to matter in heaven. That's what spurred Paul to be urgent in season and out of season and to finish his course with joy. You know, for some people, judgment scares and threatens, but not for Solomon. He knows God will judge the righteous and the wicked. For there is a time for every matter and for every work. The Eden that we were made for is going to be restored and it's going to be inhabited by those that fear God and bow to His Son. Let's pray. Jesus, some things are easy to understand and some things are difficult to follow. But the bottom line is is always fear God and to walk with you Lord in humility and thankfulness and we thank you for these words that show us all the things that yield emptiness so that we don't desire them or follow after them but instead follow after your son in his name Amen
1: Um, <clears throat> thank you, Greg. Yeah, when you read these things in Scripture, you say, "Lord, why did you put this in the, in the book? Why was this included in the book? You know, what? How is supposed to shape our life?" And to, you know, uh, when you've been around for a while and you you hear what the, all the, the great universities of the world say about how to live life and what's important, and then you realize that there's conflict and there's disagreement at every level. You can kind of see the wisdom in the Book of Ecclesiastes.
0: Yeah, the books you studied in college 25 years ago are obsolete. Yeah, they're obsolete. You know, I, I'm always rooting
1: for science. I mean, I, I feel like I'm—I love science—and I'm always rooting for science to find out the truth, the, the, the search and the dig and find out the truth. But they stop short so many times and make definitive statements about things that you're God hadn't quite spoken yet, and so you're you're always looking to see God's final word on the subject Um, thank you Greg Uh, for those of you that may not be familiar with the American culture tomorrow is Memorial Day and it's a day that sprang forth a hundred years ago soon after the Civil War they had a day called Decoration Day where families of soldiers who died in the Civil war, war would decorate the graves of the fallen. And then after a while, they thought, well, maybe we should commemorate other wars as well, and so they expanded it and renamed it as Memorial Day, and the government issued an official decree that this particular Monday... It actually, used to be May 31st, and then they finally decided to make it the last Monday in May, is a memorial day and so it's a day where we remember those who have given their lives uh, for the sake of the country so typically it would be people that have served in the armed forces one way or the other but this whole idea of giving your life for another sounds a lot like what Jesus did for us and so here we have human beings who have given themselves for us and so that's what memorial day is and And I would just like to offer a prayer, if we can, for those who have fallen to defend our country, to make this a place where people can worship freely, where we can pursue God's wisdom without people telling us and putting us in jail that this is wrong or being... uh, Now, we might be persecuted by it, but that's a different thing. The government says this is okay. So let's, uh, let's give thanks for that and pray that, um, that God would uh, continue to be honored and exalted in this country and that these that have fallen before us would be remembered. Lord, there's probably people here that remember, know someone who died serving their country. Lord, I remember my brother had a really good friend growing up. He lived across the street from us. And he died before he was 21 serving in the Marine Corps. And how it shook his family. How it shook us. This was our next-door neighbor's kid. Lord, he was popular. He was fun-loving. He was athletic. He was handsome. He went down early. But we know many like this. Lord they've given their lives in the prime of their life that we might be free Lord just ask that the memory of their lives would not be snuffed out and Lord that uh, men and women like this would be honored in our country Lord that this would be a cause to be remembered and uh, a sacred honor Father to be shown great respect and we just thank you for all these that have served us and the ones that we know Lord especially and Lord we pray that that we would find wisdom from, from your holy word and what you have said Father would become knowledge and wisdom to us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of true wisdom Father we just thank you for this opportunity that we have to gather together, pray, Lord, that um, that you would be the chief cornerstone of our lives. Mm-hmm. We pray this together in Jesus' name. Mm-hmm. Amen.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, every couple of months we issue a new calendar, so I have new yellow ones for springtime, Match Young Young's dress. It's a yellow calendar. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm, I'm gonna put these uh, over there where Matthew's sitting and make sure you pick up one. So it has thank you for the for our host because you've signed up for every Sunday through August except for July twenty seventh. So we'll figure out July twenty seventh as we get closer to that date. Um is there anything else we need to Mary as well send out directly for the we can send out directions to the park, but it's exit 285, and then go on the south side of uh, I-40. So <laughs> it's, isn't that the Morrisville? Mm-hmm. So that's it's the first exit for the airport. Yeah, it's the pr- it's the first exit for the airport, it if it you ever is. took that one. then at the top of the ramp, you go back to the left. Yeah. 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 And then you take another left. Well. When you you come to my
0: house, Greg, but don't come all the way.
1: Yeah, if you get to the if you get no,
0: no, I won't be there.
1: if you get to the <laughs> lake, you've missed the turn. Okay, the, yeah. the turn The is if between the interstate and the lake. Because yeah. if you get that far, it's just too late. Um, well, normally Mary would come down. I guess we need to send word up there to see. If, I'll it here. Would you? Okay. Um. Mm-hmm. She did, she did hey, she's, she's squared away. Okay. All right. Okay. Okay. Yeah, well Carla. We just sent Carla upstairs, so we'll 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 cover. I guess we could pass these out. So thank you to Mark to Matthew for leading our worship this morning. And next Sunday it'll be uh, Bring a potluck lunch to share with somebody else. The church will bring the plates and things. Um, we'll try to start at the, the normal time. Mm-hmm. And I think there's hiking trails and all kinds of things out there. So if you want to do that afterwards. that'd right. And bears, Greg reminded me there's bears out there. <laughs> be
0: Probably mosquitoes.
1: <laughs> Might be a few copperheads too, right? So be careful. <laughs> <Be terrible. laughs> um, so again, I'll just remind you that uh, we have a, there's a basket up here for Danielle if anybody would like to contribute to her. Okay, so we'll put this on the table for Dan, uh, donations to Danielle's trip. Should we go ahead and have the blessing? Yep. Okay. 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 should we go ahead and have the blessing then? Yes. Okay. Sure. you ask? Sure. Lord, you're a wonderful God. We thank you for the day. We thank you for the opportunity for Good Christian Fellowship, we ask that you bless our time together and bless this food for the nourishment of our bodies. It's in your holy and precious name we pray, amen. Amen. We're going to have a new route.